Would you join me as I pray? God, I pray as you say in your Psalms, would you open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things now in your word. For our good and your glory, we ask this. Amen. Any good um, parent uh, or grandparent or somebody who has uh, influence in the life of a small child typically will teach them about stranger danger, right? Anybody remember your mother or your father teaching you about stranger danger? You know, look out for those adults that you don't know, maybe people who try to engage you in conversation and, um, you know, what to do and what to look out for and how to stay out of trouble. Um, I had a stranger danger experience as a young child where those lessons came in handy. Um, Thank God, I'll give you the spoiler alert. I came through it unscathed, so don't worry. I could tell you are really worried about that. No, I was... I was young. I, to this, I don't remember how young I was. I couldn't have been more than seven. I was probably kind of a little guy, and I remember was walking my bike in a fairly safe neighborhood, not far from our house, um, neighborhood I'd been in before. I had friends in that neighborhood, but I was by myself, and I'm walking along and being in my own little seven-year-old, you know, la-la land or whatever, and um, a car pulls up and parks on the curb next to the sidewalk where I was walking. The sidewalk was actually elevated from the road a little bit, and there was some landscaping in between, so he was, you know, I don't know, 20 feet away or so, but this guy pulls up, and I'm facing the passenger side of the car, so the passenger window is down, and he leans over, and he says, hey, hey, what time is it? I got a watch on. So I was like, huh, what? Okay, I'm just walking my bike, and I look at my watch. I told him what time it was, and I didn't really think much of it um, until uh, he said, you know, like, what? I I couldn't hear you. Now, his engine was still running. I mean, he just pulled up and kind of hit the brakes, right there, and, and he, was, he was having to kind of yell at me, you know, sort of through the open window, so I just thought, okay, well, um, so I put my bike down, and I started walking closer to the car, and I got closer, and I once again told him in a little bit louder voice what time it was, and he responded by leaning over more and saying, what? I didn't hear you. Come here, and at that moment, several things happened all at once, like I guess by the grace of God, I sort of snapped out of my seven-year-old la-la land, and suddenly the whole thing felt weird. First of all, I noticed there was a young girl in the passenger seat, in the front seat, who I had seen before, but she just hadn't registered. I just assumed it was like his daughter or something. Maybe she was, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> younger than me. Um, and I suddenly noticed that she, she looked upset. Like I couldn't remember if she was crying or if she just had been crying, like whatever it was. It was really obvious to me she was not happy. And this guy, I don't know, just suddenly looked a little strange or creepy. And I realized, now he's asked me three times to tell him what time it is. I've told him twice, and I'm sure the second time he heard me just fine, you know. And like all of this is going through my head at one time, and I, di- I, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, is this guy a child abductor? Had he just kidnapped this girl, and he's trying to kidnap me too? Or maybe that really was his daughter, and he just told her she couldn't have a cookie when she got home, and she was mad at him. Like, I don't know. I just know it suddenly felt wrong. I didn't understand it, but I didn't like it. And so after the third time he asked me what time it was, I just turned my back and walked back up to the sidewalk and picked up my bike. And when I turned back around to the car, boom, he just sped off. And by God's grace, I never saw him again. You might be able to imagine how my mother felt when I got home and told her what happened. (laughs) The shock, the fear, immediate waves of relief that perhaps some stranger who may well have had hostile intentions was close to her little baby boy when she and nobody else was around to protect him, 
but somehow I had gotten through it unscathed. She reinforced every stranger danger lesson she had ever taught me. You were so right. Good for you. Now remember, don't do it. You know, and then boom, I'm yeah, yeah, I know, but it's all coming back now, right? And I, I can imagine for weeks after that, you know, mom is just like super dialed into what is going on and are my kids safe? That story came back to mind when I was reading the passage that Adam read for us earlier in preparation for this morning because First John is a, a book of scripture that's kind of designed to help Christians, if you'll pardon the analogy, with some, prepare for some spiritual stranger danger. Uh, not so much personal and physical abduction or threats, but spiritual threats. It's, it's a book of the Bible that's designed to help us as Christians differentiate the real gospel from frauds, from counterfeits. And as we've mentioned through the first three kind of sermons, the first chapter and a half of this book, there are three main distinctives that John tells us in this book about what genuine Christianity looks like. First of all, it's true to the original gospel. Uh, secondly, it results in a life of increased obedience to Christ. And lastly, as we saw last Sunday, uh, it results in increased love for one another. Now, all three of these themes have come up in the first three sermons, and now we're sort of into the meat of the book starting today. John's going to circle back around to some of these things and dive deeper into them, and he's going to hit these themes kind of in a cycle over and over and over again in different orders. So this morning, we're kind of going back to that first major theme, and he's going to really zero in on the fact that there are a lot of false Jesuses out there, and then there's a true Jesus, a true gospel message, and how do you tell the difference? He's going to help us see that the real one is true to the original. There's really two parts to the passage this morning and therefore the sermon. The first is John just trying to raise the alarm for us, to be able to say the world is not safe and you got to be on guard. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be engaged and paying attention and he's going to say a lot of strong things to kind of catch our attention as Christians. That's the first part. And then in the second part, he's got a very different goal. He actually wants to encourage us. Uh, while he wants us to be alert, he doesn't want us to be afraid. And while he wants us to be on guard, he doesn't want us to be paranoid. And he's going to encourage us that as Christians, we have everything we need to navigate this false uh, sort of pantheon of false Jesuses that are out there. We have what it takes. And he's going to give us that encouragement. He starts raising the alarm right away in verses 18 and 19, the beginning of our passage. If you're in 1 John chapter 2 with a Bible, you can look there where he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. That's why we know it is the last hour. Now, what in the world is going on with all of this last hour Antichrist kind of language? Well, of course, there's a lot going on here, but in a nutshell, uh, this is how he's trying to get our attention to realize that there's real danger out there in the real world, in real time, that real Christians need to really pay attention to. First of all, this idea of the last hour, what does he mean by that? Well, briefly, uh, this is a phrase that comes up over and over again in the Bible. Sometimes different words are used, last days, latter days, John's phrase, last hour. It's all the same thing. That was a time period that Old Testament prophets spoke of regularly, the latter days or the day of the Lord or the last days. This was a future time period from their perspective when God would show up in a new way. Like he would do something he's never done before. It's going to be different, markedly different than it is today, today being the era of the Old Testament. And when he shows up, he's going to defeat sin and death, and he's going to usher in eternal life in a powerful way like never before. Now, here's the interesting thing. The New Testament uniformly teaches that those latter days, 
which is future to the Old Testament prophets, is the present right now. We're in the latter days right now. It was a time period that began with the entrance of Jesus into the world. Let me just give you one example of many that we could share. The book of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The New Testament book of Hebrews opens this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, here's our phrase again, he has now spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as an heir of all things, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus coming into the world changed God's calendar from the former days to the latter days. We're now in this era where Jesus has shown up and changed the way people relate to God and begun the defeat of sin and death and the ushering in of eternal life to all who will trust in him. Now, why is this important? Why is John bringing it up now? It's important because the Old Testament prophets not only told us that the last days would be a time where God acts in a new way, but also where God's opponent does not go quietly. The last days are a time when God will act in a new way, but God's opponent, Satan, will also act with reinforced vigor. Christ breaks into the world of sin and death with the means of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Uh, For example, John had already said, Last week we saw this, chapter 2, verse 8. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's John's analogy. Light shining in darkness. Jesus comes into the world. It's a whole new thing. But here's the deal. The darkness doesn't go quietly. It doesn't just roll over and accept that God is doing something new. Satan doesn't just sit idly by while God seeks to save people. He steps up his game of opposing Christ Just as Jesus is shining as a light, John's analogy, meaning the gospel of Christ is spreading throughout the world, his kingdom is expanding right now in real time, well, in the same way, Satan also steps up his game of opposing the spread of the gospel. He is against Christ, or in a term that the apostle John coins, and he's actually the only one that uses it, he is anti-Christ. He's against Christ. So, that leads us to this word, okay, if we have an idea what the last hour is, then what's this antichrist, antichrists thing all about? Um, Let me just say, it's super tempting here to get really distracted and miss the entire point. Lots of people, some whole denominations, get so caught up in some of this stuff whereby we sort of fixate on a single person in history who will be the antichrist, capital A, Um, and exert Satan's influence. Will there be such a person? Who is he? What will he do? When will he come? Okay, all those questions are fine. There's a place for them. Here's what I want us to see in the book of 1 John. John doesn't care. Well, that's a little bit of an overstatement. In this passage, that's not his point. He's not trying to get us to care about that. Actually, what he says, if you look at verse um, 18, You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Now, whatever and whomever he may mean by that, here's where John says, so now many Antichrists, plural, small a, if you will, have already arisen, and that's what he's trying to draw our attention to as readers. The plural present Antichrist. You see, again, the idea of Jesus' kingdom is expanding by the spread of the gospel, and that's fabulous. But at the same time, even though the kingdom of God is expanding right now in history, at the same time, there is an an opposite reaction from Satan to oppose the spread of the gospel 
in real time, active, in real history, intentional, going on right now. That's what the latter days have always been promised to be. And what John wants his readers to understand is, like, that's the world we're living in, Christian. Like, understand the danger, the threat is real. In verses 22 to 26, he talks a little bit about kind of who these antichrists were. They clearly were people running around in the first century. He calls them small a, antichrists, people who are against Christ. They're against the spread of the gospel. Who are denying, among among other things, that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 22, who is the liar but one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, small a, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to explain that there's only one way to get to God the Father. There's only one way to get eternal life, and it's through his Son. And so you've got all these other people running around saying, I'll tell you how to connect with God. I'll tell you how to get eternal life. But let me tell you something different about Jesus than what the apostles told you. And he says, that doesn't work. The only way you get God and get eternal life is through his son. If you deny his son, you don't have the father and you don't have eternal life. That's the original. That's the message. Their message does not conform to the original. That's why you know it's false. They are anti-Christs because they're trying to draw people away from this real gospel. Jesus had said this kind of thing was gonna happen. Um, none of this is a new idea for John. He's just going back to what Jesus taught. Let me give one example of this. Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 24. Jesus himself said, false Christs and false prophets, teachers, will arise and they will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, there's our deception idea, if possible, even the elect. You see, regularly Jesus says, like, this is gonna happen. I'm here now. The kingdom of God is here. The the gospel message is going out. People can have eternal life, but Satan's not gonna sit idly by. He is gonna work through people who have a very different message that's gonna draw people away from the gospel so that they never hear it or they don't believe it because they believe something else. Those people are ultimately fueled by the ultimate antichrist, Satan himself. And they are, in John's language, little antichrists, little people who are against the gospel. So, all right, what do we do with all this? What's, what's the point? Here's what I think John is driving at with all this. He's not trying to get us off on some like futuristic speculation. He's trying to teach us something about the real world environment we live in right now. And it's this, he's, he's raising the alarm. I think he wants his readers to understand that we're living in a time of increasing opposition to the gospel from Satan through many means, one of which is deception and false teaching. Like he wants us to see that the religious landscape is not neutral. It's not. In our modern American culture, we tend to assume that it is, that religion is a matter of private personal choice, that the world's religions are sort of like a buffet, and you can pick and choose from whichever one you want to eat, including none at all, if you just choose to not be religious. And either way, it kind of doesn't matter. It's all up to you. It's just sort of a neutral thing. The Bible does not share that view. The Bible is telling us the religious landscape is not neutral. God is here announcing the only way to eternal life and offering that to everybody who will believe. But we are facing an intelligent, motivated, and active enemy who wants to lead people away from the gospel of grace by sowing misleading ideas about Jesus. And and so what John is trying to do is he's trying to get us to take what we already know and make it real. Right, like back, back to that experience I started with here when I encountered that strange guy on the car. Now I go home and I tell my mother what happened. And it's not like my mom 
was unaware that there are strange people out there who sometimes want to take advantage of children. She knew that. Any, any adult does. Any adult, uh, any parent teaches their kids to, to guard against stranger danger. My parents had done that too. They were aware that the danger was there, but you know, it's, it's one thing to know that the world can be a dangerous place in principle. Like, I know there's people out there. I hear, like, amber alerts that go off every now and then on the news or on my phone or something. I'm aware that bad things happen to kids from bad people, and, and I know that that's there, but it can still seem sort of abstract, right, and kind of far away. And so, sure, we, we teach our kids and our nieces and our nephews and so forth and our grandkids how to guard against that, but, but it just kind of can seem far away. But how much does it change our mindset? If you're out front pulling weeds and talking to your neighbors or you're on next door and you're looking at what your neighbors are saying in, in the neighborhood, and you realize that like in the last month, there have been three different reports of unknown adult strangers approaching unaccompanied minors and trying to talk to them right in your neighborhood in the last month, and all the neighbors are talking about it. Now how do you feel? It's not that this is a new idea to you, but oh my gosh, now it's become real, Right? Now it's not just like, I'm going to pull my kids together and have another conversation about stranger danger. I'm going to, maybe I'm going to walk my kids to school for the next week or two. Like, I'm not just going to make sure, has anybody been talking to you? Like, I'm going to, you know, you're just much more aware of it. You're engaged because the threat seems more imminent and more real. That's what the book of 1 John is trying to do for us. It's trying to take an abstract reality that most Christians are already aware of and make it real for us. John wanted them to be alert to the many deceptive and yet attractive false Jesuses that are in their world. It's probably not a surprise. I think the same warning is apropos today. The messages vary over time and place, but the issue is still the same. One only needs to think about um, what we often call pseudo-Christian religions, uh, entire religions that will take the words of the Bible and change them the way that Jehovah's Witnesses do, where they've retranslated the Bible to fit their theology, and then they tell their people in kind of a cultic, high-control way, we're the only ones who have the truth, don't read any of other Bibles, don't listen to anybody else. This is the truth you need to believe, and it's different than the original. Or other pseudo-Christian religions that maybe don't change the words of the Bible, but they add other religious texts to it to be on par with it and maybe functionally be above it, like the Mormon church does. Or you can turn on the television and see all kinds of, of show people who are these false kind of faith healer types. And some of those people have actually been exposed as frauds and their shenanigans have been shown to be simply manipulation. It's embarrassing. But here's the point. When you add all these kinds of influences together, pseudo-Christian religions and false televangelist types, literally millions of people are drawn in every year both in our country and abroad. Deception works. Deception works. But here's the thing. It can be far more subtle than that. It can be far more subtle. Many of us sitting in this room right now are probably like, well, I'm not really in danger of believing a false religious book, and I definitely don't tune into or send money to, please don't, any of the crazy television evangelists, okay? I'm, I'm not in danger of that. Maybe, maybe not but it can also be far more subtle. Many of us actually in this room have experienced times in the past, in other churches, thankfully, where maybe church leaders got on a power trip and they made the church more about them than about Jesus. Others, churches right here in our own community over the last few decades, 
have started out preaching and teaching the gospel faithfully, but certain church leaders get a hold of new ideas and manage to start teaching things about Jesus that aren't true. And suddenly everything goes south, and some of those churches have actually imploded and gone away because of bad doctrine. Now that, that's real life stuff that really happens to real people. Many of us right here in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about, some of us. And if you've been through something like that, you know that it usually happens really gradually. Like there's not this overnight, you know, sudden shift that everybody can see. It's more of a subtle thing over time, and it's harder to spot when you're in the midst of it, and you're just attending the same church with the same people, you know, week in, week out for years. It's easier to see from the outside, and it's definitely easier to see in retrospect. Oh my gosh, I look back at the last five years, and I see now what was happening, and you almost feel like ashamed, like why did I not see that before? But when you're in the midst of it, that can be a very hard thing to detect. Deception is real. It works. And honestly, it can be subtler still, even than all of these examples I've given of other religions and other churches. I'm not immune to this. Harvest isn't immune to this. We're not deception-proof. Wish we were. We're not. So many people in our day and age are deeply spiritual. We'll freely talk about God, about angels, especially guardian angels. Freely talk about loving people, about going to church, about making a positive difference in the world. Lots and lots of very good and even biblical subjects. But you tend to hear far less about people talking about God's just wrath directed at my personal sin. About, about me as, as a sinner who cannot stand before holy God. We tend to hear far less about Jesus, my righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice. That's the language John used earlier in chapter two. Who paid for my personal sin on the cross so that I, an unworthy sinner, can be united with a holy God in eternal life forever. We often tend to hear less about things like repenting from that sin and embracing the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. But that kind of language is all over the Bible. It's just everywhere. If we don't have the Son, John makes it very clear, we don't have the Father and we don't have eternal life. That's the real gospel. But it can be easy to talk about a lot of other religious things and even be excited about it. And we've missed the whole point. Friends, please don't hear me wrong. Angels are real. Um, a real salvation causes us to love people and make a positive difference in the world. That's actually the third point from the book of 1 John that we had, and we'll have several sermons on that coming up. Those are important topics. But they're not the core of the gospel. They're not the core of the gospel. It can be so easy to lose sight of what's really essential, no matter how good our intentions are. And the point is simply this. There are literally hundreds of deceptive ideas about Jesus that circulate today such that no Christian, myself included, can say, I'm deception-proof. It'll never happen to me. Like, we all know what happens the minute you say that, right? I let my guard down, and then boom, something blindsides me, and I may be the last person in the room to even notice it. The Bible wants us to be alert. Now, just before we move to the second point, which is um, an encouragement... I want to clarify one thing. It wants us to be alert. I don't think it wants us to be paranoid. Okay? And here's what I mean by that and where I'm getting that from the flow of this text. Um, 
even the desire to be alert, to, to be a Christian who understands there's false teaching out there and I'm gonna apply myself diligently to study the Bible and differentiate the false ideas from the right ideas, that is a good and right desire. But you know what? Even that desire is something Satan can use to deceive us because it can lead to an attitude of suspicion toward the outside world. You know what I mean? People, even other churches and professing Christians who just don't do everything the way we do it and we start to become suspicious of everybody who doesn't perhaps dot every theological I or cross every theological T exactly the way that we do. Over time, it can develop an us-against-them kind of like bunker mentality. And this happens in so many churches where we're so concerned, sometimes just about making sure that we're holding on to the truth, that over time we don't even realize it, but we're just like, we're in our walls and we're suspicious of all those other people out there, you know? (laughs) Again, it's the kind of thing that when it's happening to you, you barely even notice it, but other people from the outside are like, wow, you guys are just like against everybody. And we're like, no, we're not. Well, maybe we are. Because maybe alertness has shifted over into paranoia. You even catch many churches um, whose doctrinal statements are excellent, but then when you talk to their people and you listen to what they teach, it becomes things like, you know, if you're not baptized in our church, you're probably not going to heaven. We can chuckle about that, but there are more than one church and denomination out there that will actually teach that. You know, if you don't eat the way that we eat and interpret the dietary laws of the Bible the way we do, you know, you're probably not even saved. If you don't dress the way that we dress or the list could go on, you know, we're the only true church, right? There it is again. That's its own form of false teaching. The belief that the path to eternal life is found in strictly adhering to the ethical and ceremonial standards of the chosen sect because because we're driven by fear of getting it wrong. That's paranoia. That is not the mindset the Bible is talking about here. It's trying to get us to be alert, not fear-based and paranoid. How do we know that? Because coupled with the desire to have Christians be alert, there is a powerful encouragement that as Christians, you have everything you need in order to differentiate between danger and falsehood. You don't need to be paranoid. You don't need to be fear-driven. The other half of this passage is a powerful encouragement for us as Christians. Let's look at that now. Having raised the alarm, John, the author, is very careful to affirm that they know the truth, that they're not building their lives on a false Jesus, his original readers, that is, and that they have what it takes to discern truth from fiction. He actually mentions two specific resources that these Christians have that give them everything that they need in order to discern truth from fiction. The first is we have God's people. Verse 21 is interesting. I don't know if you noticed it when we read through it. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I'm not assuming that this is a Christianity 101 lesson and you people have never heard this stuff before. He's like, I know you know the gospel. (laughs) I'm not writing to you to teach you something you don't know. I am writing to you because you already know it. what does that mean? If I already know it, could you have saved a tree? (laughs) Right? I mean, okay, I'm glad you think I already know it, so why the letter? (laughs) I think the answer becomes pretty evident when we start thinking about it because we need to keep hearing it. 
We need to keep hearing it. Even though he affirms that the readers of his original letter know the truth, they need to keep hearing it. We need to, we need to marinate in God's word and listen to it and speak it to one another. That, that's the whole idea of what's going on here. He's like, you need me as an apostle. You need one another. He's writing this letter to be read in churches in the first century to circulate around so that Christians can talk with one another about what we already know. And this is one reason that joining a solid Bible-based church is so essential for your spiritual growth because Christianity is not an individual thing between me and God only although certainly many aspects of it are a personal relationship I have with God through Jesus Christ. But it is not that only. It's participation in the larger body of his other uh, believers, his other sons and daughters, who the Bible says are now my brothers and sisters. It is participation in that family. We call those families churches. We call them churches. Like you can't go away from regular church participation for like four years of college and not have it negatively impact your Christian life. It's impossible. I can't go away from regular active church participation for like two years because I moved into a new area because I took a new job and life got busy and we just never really got around to finding a church and here we are two years later and we haven't been to church in two years and not have it negatively impact your Christian life. God intends us not only to be reading his Bible ourselves and praying with him personally, but connecting with one another. That's why the community and relationships are such an important value here at Harvest. We want to do that better and better. And it's more than just, um, I'm probably the first guy in the room that should say this. I should probably say it once a month. <laughs> it's more than just podcasting the sermon. We put our sermon audio online, most churches these days do, because we're technological people. And that's cool. We have a lot of reasons for that. It's really helpful if you are sick or out of town for a weekend or something and you want to stay caught up with what's going on. For people that are looking for new churches, um, getting online, listening to sermons is a great way to... There's a lot of good reasons that sermons are, are put on the website. But it's not a matter of just saying, oh, I miss church, I'll just listen to the sermon and then I'm good. Listen to the preacher say, it's about more than the sermon. What we're doing right here, right now, and open up God's word and all listening to it together is a vital and essential, central part of what God calls churches to do when they come together. But it's as much in the coming together around God's word as it is about God's word. It's hearing it together and then engaging with one another based on what we heard. That's where the life of the Spirit starts to permeate a body of believers. Not when we come in, listen, and then just check out and never connect with somebody else. If it was just about podcasting the sermon, man, you guys wouldn't even need me on the staff. <laughs> Let me tell you, there are way better preachers out there than me. If you want, I can give you a list of about 10 of them, okay? We wouldn't need to hire preachers. We could just all download sermons from like John Piper and Tim Keller and Matt Chandler and listen to them, and we'd be, like, there's more good teaching on their websites than you'll ever get through in your entire life. <laughs> it's not just about podcasting a sermon. It's about the body being the body and engaging in community around God's word with one another. That's something that can't be replicated on the internet. When you do life together with a group of people, you hear the same word taught and then you dive in it together and we talk about how does this relate to you? How does it relate to me? And we do life together that way. Friends, that's why, that's why this church exists. And, and that's, that's why we do membership here. I appreciate what Jordan said about that earlier. Um, membership isn't just a name on a piece of paper or on a roll. It's like, what does it mean to be a part of this church? What is God in the Bible calling us to, to do with and for one another? And so 
And if anything that I've said just in the last like two minutes is either like confusing to you or you're like, really? Is any of that in the, that's all in the Bible? You know, what, I want to encourage you to just come to the membership class uh, because that's where we just open up the Bible and we talk about this stuff. Or if anything I've said kind of resonates with you, please just feel free to come right afterwards from 12 to 2. We're going to meet together. Um, we'll have a little bit of food for you so you won't faint uh, in the midst of it. And just look at what the Bible says about being a body together. First resource they have is God's people. Second resource they have is God's spirit. It's God's Holy Spirit. Twice, a specific role of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this passage. Now, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit of God comes into the life of a Christian when I become a Christian, and at that point, he does a lot of things. He does a lot of things. Um, The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit filling us, the Holy Spirit cleansing us, the Holy Spirit empowering us to live the way that he wants us to live, the Holy Spirit gifting us, the Holy Spirit leading us. All of these things are things in the Bible. None of them are what John is talking about here. John is focused on one specific aspect of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian, and that is that the Holy Spirit teaches us. That's what he talks about here, verse 20 but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and therefore you have all knowledge. And later on down in verse 27, he mentions it again. But the anointing that you received from him, that is from God, abides in you, therefore you have no need that anyone should teach you. But just as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, just as he taught you, abide in him. Now by saying you don't, have anybody, you don't need to have anybody teach you anything, he's not taking me out of a job, I'm happy to say. Maybe you guys don't care, but that's important to me. Um, No, seriously, he's not saying we we don't need to ever hear the Bible taught. What he's saying is, with regard to the false teachers who are saying, no, 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 you got Jesus all wrong. Let me tell you about the true Jesus. He's like, you don't need that. (laughs) Guys, you already know the true Jesus. You don't need somebody to teach you some new thing about who Jesus really is. You already know. That's what he means. You already know because you've heard it taught accurately and because the Holy Spirit is in you and he, among other things, teaches Christians how to understand God's truth rightly. Once again, Jesus taught us that. Uh, One example of that from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. One of the things Jesus says about the role of the Holy Spirit. This is from John, chapter 14, verse 26 night before he was crucified, Jesus told his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, everything you need to know, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have already said to you. So there's this idea that one of the things God's Holy Spirit does, if we're depending on him and we're in the Bible, is that he will help us rightly understand what God is actually saying, and he will help us remember it, he will bring it to mind, what Jesus has already taught us when we need it. That's something that God is actually in you, if you're a Christian, helping you do. Yes, we have external human teachers. We also have an internal divine teacher, and it's not me and my spirit and my heart. It is God's spirit and his heart. The point is simply this. Like I, I can study the Bible without God's help. I can. Secular Bible scholars do it all the time. I can learn the basic principles of, of exegesis, that is Bible study. I can uh, learn church history, and I can approach the Bible as a historical religious document and learn and study all kinds of things about it. I don't need God's help for that. But what I cannot do is understand what God is saying accurately 
and recognize it for the beautiful truth it actually is, such that it captivates my heart and I submit to it because it is him, I can't do that on my own. In fact, studying the Bible without God's help will just make you more cold and hard toward God because you think you've mastered it. God helps us understand it rightly so that it masters us. I cannot see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful without the Holy Spirit's help. And in this passage, I also cannot differentiate between the many false Jesuses and the real Jesus without his help because some of those false Jesuses sound pretty smart. And I can always find a way to rationalize why they might actually be right. It is the Holy Spirit that helps keep me anchored in the gospel as originally revealed. But here's the great news. Here's, Here's the point of all of this. All Christians have this help. All of them. Every, everybody. Everybody who's a Christian has the Holy Spirit of God in them, teaching him, teaching her truth from fiction. And John's telling us, rely on that. Pray for that. Pray for God's illumination. Pray for God's recollection. Pray before you come to listen to any sermon. Pray before your daily Bible reading. In the midst of your daily Bible reading, pray before or during or after your discussions with your community life group and your Bible study or your family around the table. God, show us what's really true here. We've got our ideas. Help conform them to your truth. Conscious, active dependence on the Holy Spirit while we are studying and sharing with one another what God's word is saying. So we need to do all of those things. But here's the great thing. I mean, like, this isn't primarily about the Holy Spirit just inserting new ideas into our heads that we didn't know before. That's not his teaching ministry. That kind of thing could happen, I suppose. God can do whatever he wants. But that's not the norm. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is Jesus saying, all the words I've taught you that you've already listened to, he's going to bring to remembrance. He's going to help you understand them. But the great news is you and I as Christians, we all have access to the Holy Spirit. Which means that like when John earlier in the passage was like, alert, you know, stranger danger, there's all these false Jesuses out there you need to be on guard for. He's not expecting, while he does want us to be alert, he doesn't expect us to be discouraged. He actually wants us to be encouraged. Be encouraged because we have something better than a detailed knowledge of every error out there that I could write down in a book and it would become my new legalistic religion. He says, you've got something better. You've got the true gospel and you've got one another and you've got God's Holy Spirit in you, teaching you every moment. And what this means, friends, is if if you've ever sat in a church service or listened to a sermon podcast from a really great preacher or heard somebody pray or maybe you've sat in a community life group or a small group Bible study or something and you've heard other Christians who have been at it longer than you kind of like talk about their knowledge of the Bible or you listen to them pray and you're like, oh, I can never pray like that. Well, they know so much more than me. I can never measure up nonsense. It's not about them. And this is telling us it's not about you either. They don't actually have anything you don't have. They have God's word, the Bible. They have God's people. And they have God's Holy Spirit. And other than maybe a little more experience than you, because naturally we all get better at stuff as we grow, that's good. But other than more experience, as a brand new Christian, as a young or maturing Christian, you don't actually lack any resources that more veteran Christians have. The same Holy Spirit is in you. What that means is that the Bible is not beyond you. It's not beyond you. You can master this book because you have the greatest teacher in the world, the guy who wrote it. (laughs) That's not me. 
That's the Holy Spirit of God in you. So I encourage you, read the Bible, contribute to discussions, pray out loud in groups with other people. Don't freak out about how I might sound or, or, or if I might stumble. Who cares? The only way we learn to ride a bike is to get on it and ride it. The point is you've got the bike. God's given it to you. Let's trust him in that. He concludes with the, the exhortation to abide in Christ. Verse 25. Abide in him, stay in him. That's language straight from Jesus. Abide in me. What that means is live there, stay there. What they know, the truth that Jesus Christ is our righteous advocate and atoning sacrifice, he says, stay there. We've talked about these false roads, right? This is John doing the same thing again. There's all these false roads that we want to run down. There's this road of, you know, shame. I look at myself and how I don't measure up and I just feel bad about it and I dwell there. Or there's this road of striving. I look at what God wants me to be and I know I'm not there so I work harder. And then there's this road of settling. It's like, I don't want to work harder and freak out. So this is just the best I can do and I just settle. And what John is saying is the road of Christ is better than all that. The road of the Savior is better than shame or striving or settling. And so he's just up there like, traffic stop, road closed, detour. Go over here. Be warned that there are false Jesuses out there. You've got to differenti- differentiate between them. So I can beat myself up over how I have failed to do that in the past, or I can get determined that I'm going to get smarter and smarter, and maybe I need to, but I'm going to rely on that. Or I'm going to say, yeah, you know, there's a lot, but whatever. I'm just moving along, and there's a threat out there, but I'm okay, and so I've just got that, whatever. And he's like, get off those roads. <laughs> Come back to your Savior, your righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice who put his spirit in you. We have what it takes to be led by God in the community of faith around his word to build our lives on the true gospel of Christ. And that's a powerful encouragement. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the grace of who you are, what you've done, and what you've given. For the illumination of your spirit, the truth of your word, and for the precious gift you've given us even in one another. And Father God, I pray that more and more as time goes on, we at this church would become a people who are very alert to the reality of who you really are and following you accurately and also delighted to help one another follow you accurately and perhaps most of all actively dependent on you to help us see what we need to see and learn what we need to learn dependent on no man as much as we are dependent on you our maker father god would you get the glory from that would you make us an increasingly gospel-centered people who are as a, that is an effective tool in your hands of leading more and more people to faith in christ god we ask these things in your son's name and for his glory amen